For when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And Jesus was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning them in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear Father in heaven, we pray that you would grant to us understanding, Lord Jesus, of your salvation that has brought to us on the cross, Holy Spirit, that you fill our hearts with knowledge and wisdom, we pray. In your, in your name we ask. Amen. Please be seated. And if you would, grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, continuing on as we look at the kingdom coming upon this earth. Mark chapter 2, public service announcement here for everybody. Uh, today, a little bit later today, is the Super Bowl. Um, just in case you had missed that, just so that I get a sense a little bit of uh, the congregation here. Who's going to watch at least half of the Super Bowl? About half? Okay. Oh, all right. Good majority of you will have at least part of the Super Bowl on for most of the time. I appreciate that. 56 years ago, the first Super Bowl, uh, NBC broadcasted, same company that's broadcasting Super Bowl today, I believe, um, and NBC had 11 cameras on the first Super Bowl. They used 11 cameras on the first Super Bowl because they were intent on not missing anything. They wanted to make sure they you captured every part of the game, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, today, for uh, the, the Super Bowl, the plan is for NBC to have 112 cameras, 112 different cameras. And of course, the point is they don't want to miss a single thing. They don't want to miss any part of it. If you calculate that up, that's the camera for almost every player that's on the field that will ever be on the field. Uh, so we've got a lot of cameras that are around the room here as we do this. Now, the key thing for me today is thinking about this passage that we just read not wanting to miss any part of it. So let's assume we were filming it, we had to video it or something like that. How many cameras would we use? Uh, if we wanted to make sure, like the Super Bowl today, they don't want to miss any part of it. If we don't want to miss any part of the action here or of the storyline, how many cameras do you use? Well, we've got to have one camera for the paralytic and his friends. We certainly have to have one camera for Jesus as he talks to the paralytic. We've got to have a camera on the scribes. We've got a camera on Jesus as he talks with the scribes and dialogues with the scribes. And then I think we've got to at least have one camera on the crowd as a whole so that we can see and follow their reaction across the board. So we've got these different cameras. And the point is not to miss 
a single step, a single uh, spot of the action here as we look at this story together. So we're going to shift from one camera to the next. We're going to just jump around like we're watching through a different camera film so that we capture the action. The first camera, again, is set upon the paralytic and his friends. We're told the background of the story here is that Jesus has returned to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is... Um, uh, it, it's probably the largest city, or it's it, at least in your mind, think of it as a large town. And Jesus is said to return there. The implication is, uh, certainly when you use all the Gospels together, that Jesus kind of used Capernaum as his home base. That was kind of the spot where he went and did most of his ministry, let, let out most of his ministry while he was in Galilee. We associate Jesus, as we should, with Nazareth. It's where he was born. Uh, or where his lineage was, where he was raised. But nevertheless, you kind of get this idea uh, that Capernaum was kind of where he was centered most of the time. And at the end of verse 1, it says that he was reported that he was at home. Uh, at home can mean a couple of different things. One, it can just mean that he was at a home. Or it could mean that he was at his home. In other words, the idea that the family might have moved to Capernaum or something like this. But mostly we assume that he was at Peter's home. Earlier in chapter 1, if you remember in Mark, uh, Jesus is at Peter's home and kind of uses P Peter's home as the base upon which he does most of his ministry. So he's there, and what is he doing? At the end of verse 2, he is preaching the word of God. Uh, we've got a crowd that is gathered and when he is preaching the word of God. But we want to focus in upon uh, our camera, upon the paralytic and his friends. And so in verse 3, the paralytic and his friends came. The paralytic is being carried by four men. Uh, I kind of flirted with the idea of bringing four guys up front here. And now we don't know paralytic. You know, I, we don't know how old he is. He's clearly uh, beyond a child stage. So he's a young man at least. So he's 20 or more. And we don't know how what he weighs, well, you know, assume 110 pounds or something like that. I thought of having four guys stand up here the whole time that I was preaching, just holding, the, uh, hold, holding a cot in the air, just to give you that visual of what it would have been like for these four guys to be carrying the paralytic. Now, one of the things that comes to the four right away is that they can't get in to see Jesus. Because as Jesus is preaching... The house is filled so full, uh, the text here says that there's no room, that they, even at the door, kind of, the wording is kind of such that we would say it's spilling out of the door. This crowd is so massive that it's spilling out of the door. What we want to look at with our camera as we focus in upon the paralytic and his friends is the faith in which they operate. Very clearly, the, their faith is central to this story. You look in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, referencing the paralytic's friends, when he saw their faith, he says to the son. So the action in this story is centered around the faith of the friends. So I want to take a look at that a little bit. I think that's what we want to follow as we look at the first camera here of following the paralytic and his friends. What do we see about their faith? Well, they're carrying the paralytic up the street. We don't know for how long they've been carrying him or anything, but let's assume it's some distance. And they're carrying the paralytic up the street because they want to get him to Jesus. And suddenly they get to this house, and it is so full that people are piling, they're spilling out the doors. They can't even get, they can't get near Jesus. And the first characteristic that you see about their faith is how persistent they are. 
Oh, we need to take a step back here for a second because and confront something that we will see over and over in the book of Mark. Normally, we would associate and assume that if a large crowd is gathered around Jesus, that's a good thing. Jesus is preaching. He's trying to reveal who he is. He's trying to talk about the salvation, the kingdom of God that has come. And we would assume that it's a good thing if there's a big crowd. But in the Gospel of Mark in particular, the crowd is rarely referenced in a positive sense. Almost exclusively, the crowd is identified as, as a group of people that are following Jesus, that are listening to Jesus, but never from a standpoint of faith. We don't get the picture that the crowd is a block of people that are eager to hear faithful words and to respond in faith to Jesus. Instead, the crowd functions almost exclusively in the book of Mark more in terms of a hindrance or not quite opposition, but a problem, an obstacle to overcome. The crowd is present over their self-interest, not the focus upon the kingdom of God. And so while we would normally read about a large crowd and normally put in our heads the thought, oh, that's a good thing, the crowd is positive, Mark frequently uses the crowd as an illustration of the obstacles, the problems of coming to Jesus. And here we have the paralytic being carried by these four men, and literally they can't get to Jesus because of the crowd. The crowd functions here for Mark, not positively, but negatively. But here you see that first characteristic, that first trait, their persistence. So I can't, I can't imagine the conversation, you know, hey, you know, we can't get Joe in there. What are we going to do? You know, can we push through the crowd? Can't push through the crowd? Man, we carried him all this way. What are we going to do? And then one of the guys from the back says, let's carry him up to the roof. You know, and so they think, okay, let's carry him up to the roof. Now, don't think in terms of slanted roofs. It wasn't a, a, an angled roof like what we would normally envision. It, was, it would have been a flat roof, and there would have been a staircase, an external staircase that gets up to the roof. Um, it would have sort, if you put in your mind a fire escape, it's something like a fire escape. So you got to imagine these four guys have this lame paralytic person in a mat, and they're somehow working him up the staircase to get to the roof. And so then they get to the roof, and what do they do? Look in verse 4 here. Uh, and because of the crowd, they could not get near him. They removed the roof. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So the persistence of their faith, that they're going to push through the obstacles, then they get to the roof. Now they remove the roof. The text here says they remove the roof. The word there is digging. They digged, digged? They digged through the roof. Is that right, English? They dug. There it is. <laughs> I knew something that didn't sound right. They dug through the roof in order to get to him. Now, the roof would have had major beams, and then it would have had some cross planking on top of it. And then on top of the cross planking, in order to weatherproof it, you know, they didn't have tiles and some of the stuff that we use, they, they would have um, layered on top of that a lot of thatch, leaves, and branches, and stuff like that. And then on top of that, they would have piled mud. And the mud could have been as much as two feet thick. Grass would grow on, on the top of your roof. So when they get to the top of the roof, they have to dig through two feet of mud, all of the thatch and all that kind of stuff, and remove the boards so that they could lower the paralytic down there. Now, 
what, what does this demonstrate of their faith? Again, that persistent character is there, but so is the sacrificial character of our faith, the costliness of our faith. Because exhibiting faith, their confidence in Jesus, that they want to get this paralytic in front of him, they dig through somebody else's roof. I guarantee you, while they were doing it, they had in their mind the fact that they were going to have to apologize to the owner of the home, and they were going to have to replace the roof, which was no easy task. But their faith is persistent, and it's costly. And it is also visible. Look in verse 5 there. When, Je- when Jesus saw their faith. Now, it would be easy to default to, well, Jesus is divine and he can see what's going on. And so, No, that's not what it, When Jesus saw their faith, their faith is active. Their faith demonstrates itself not in the fact that they have certain doctrinal truths locked in their heads. That certainly might be the case. But their faith here is worked out in the way in which they live their lives and what they are doing for one another. And so what you have here is a faith that is persistent. You have a faith that is costly, that they are willing to pay the cost in order to have that faith. And that faith is visible to all that are around them. And finally, the characteristic about this faith is not that it arises from within them, not that it is all about the deep feelings that they have, not about the character. What does their faith drive them to do? Their faith drives them to Jesus. Jesus, the Lord, is the focus of their faith. Not how strong they believe, not the quality of their faith, not the quantity of their faith, but the object of their faith. And their object is Jesus Christ. Now, I'm our first camera shot here about the paralytic and his friends is such that they portray the kind of a faith that Jesus engages with, that triggers the action here of the rest of the story. When Jesus then turns to the paralytic and talks to him, and lo and behold, it is all about this persistence, the costliness the visual, the visible character of their faith and the fact that their faith is oriented upon Jesus Christ. And of course, the question, the challenge for any of us is would anybody look at our faith and see those traits? Do they see a persistence that overcomes the obstacles to those faith? Do they see a faith? Can they see it manifested in your life? Do they see that you follow through with that faith even when it is costly for you? And can they tell that your faith is oriented on Jesus Christ and driving us towards Jesus Christ? Camera shifts from looking at the paralytic now shifts now to Jesus. And Jesus talking to the paralytic in verse 5, he says, now Jesus saw their faith. Um, A real challenge here to us theologically, by the way. Jesus sees their faith and says to the paralytic, the faith, the sins, he's about to forgive the sins of the paralytic, and he does so based upon the faith of the friends. Just an interesting side note there. When Jesus saw their faith, he says to the paralytic, son, 
your sins are forgiven. Son, the comment there of sons is not a patronizing, pat you on the head kind of a thing. It's a term of endearment, but beyond that, it's a term of relationship. What Jesus is saying to the paralytic when he's talking to the paralytic, he identifies him as one to whom he is intimate with one he has connection with. Now, I don't know if that's because he knew him from beforehand or whatever, but clearly Jesus is identifying his response to the paralytic as measured by the intimacy, the relationship that he is seeking with the paralytic by calling him son. Son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. I recently was talking with a friend of mine. He was telling a story about how one uh, Christmas or something, he got as a gift a rat trap. Uh, A friend gave him a rat trap, and he kind of looked at the gift and kind of went, okay, thanks. You know, not thinking he had any rats, it was just kind of a gift, and you kind of go, okay, I got a rat trap. It was only later, when he got rats, that he realized how valuable the rat trap was as a gift. Of course, imagine the scene. The paralytic comes down. Uh, by the way, I don't know uh, uh, what it would be like. Literally imagine, I'm standing here talking like this and suddenly the roof opens up and uh, down comes a paralytic. Okay, I don't know how you guys would respond. I, at one wedding I had, I had a bridesmaid pass out. Um, and I was right in the middle of my sermon and I'm talking and the bridesmaid passed out and of course everybody huddles around and cares for the bridesmaid and then she's all taken care of, then what happens? You know, I'm like, well, as I was saying, you know, no, you, you know, you just can't go back into your sermon after that. So it was, you know, really had to, so I can imagine Jesus is preaching and suddenly the roof opens and down comes his paralytic and, you know, it kind of stops everything. Everything kind of gets stopped there for a second. And he turns to the paralytic, seeing him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, camera zooming in on the paralytic's face at that moment. How does he respond? okay, it's kind of great that my sins are forgiven. I appreciate that. You can see the confusion on the paralytic's face, I think, or at least you should, because you kind of like that, but it's kind of self-evident that's not what I'm here for. Jesus, the great healer who has been healing people from chapter one on forward, and now you're sitting here saying, you know, okay, here I am, and he says, well, your sins are forgiven. And the paralytic is kind of like, okay, how often do we as a people of God pray for people who are suffering, who need healing, who need the master's touch to bring them through the cancer or to bring them through the operation or as they struggle with COVID or as they struggle with whatever. Praying for people in need is a huge part of the Christian life, and it should be. And yet, how often do we deal with the fact that God doesn't always answer those prayers the way we want him to? What did the paralytic's friends want? What did the paralytic want? He's not looking to have his sins forgiven. He's looking to be made whole. And yet, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Because Christ is always giving us what we need, not necessarily what we want. 
Christ is always giving us exactly what we need, regardless of what we think we want. I guarantee you the paralytic and his friends were looking for physical healing. And yet Jesus perceives their real issue, the real need for this paralytic. And that is not his physical state. It's not the 10, 20, 50 years of his earthly existence. It is his eternal standing with the Father. And so he turns and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Camera switch to the scribes. The scribes and the Pharisees kind of think of them in the same boat there. Verse 6, now some of the scribes were sitting there. By the way, just as a moment of humor, they were sitting there. I ask you to imagine, if somebody was digging through our roof right now and opened up a big hole, who would be still sitting here? Nobody would, right? Everybody would stand up and point in the ceiling and move away from the stuff. So you kind of get the idea the scribes are sitting there listening to Jesus, really snotty in their views, and the dirt and the debris is raining down on top of them, and they're just sitting there. Okay, so the scribes are sitting there, and they question, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes and the Pharisees are the bad guys. They're the bad guys in the book, and, and most of us know that. They're the ones that kind of are always off on the wrong foot. They're the ones that oppose Jesus so often. They're ultimately going to be behind Jesus' death. Uh, and we get it in our mind, the scribes and the Pharisees are the bad guys, so we dismiss what they're thinking. But we can't dismiss this necessarily because every once in a while, the scribes get it right. And the scribes have it right. He is blaspheming for giving sin like that. Now, how is this? How, I'm trying to think how to play it out, and I, I need some help up here. So, uh, AJ and Owen are coming up here, and they're going to help me out a little bit. Okay, so I'm walking along. I'm, I'm walking along with my two friends, uh, AJ, everybody, and Owen. I'm walking along with AJ and Owen. We're just, you know, having a good old time. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, with no prompting at all, AJ clocks Owen and knocks him to the ground. We had to rehearse this to make sure that AJ wouldn't actually hit him. Um, okay, so, and, and of course, now, uh, me, I kind of go, are you okay? Are you okay? Okay, stay down. Uh, 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 are you okay? He say, and, and check, and he's okay. And then I turn to AJ, and I say, what? It's okay. I forgive you. And how does Owen feel when he hears me say that? Who the heck are you to be forgiven AJ for clocking me in the face? Who needs to forgive AJ? Owen does. Owen? Yeah, okay. Go ahead. Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, play acting. We rehearsed that so many times. Uh, uh, okay. What are the Pharisees and the scribes here identifying? They're seeing something that is true. Only the one who is offended can forgive. It is the one who is offended, who has been the, the victim, that is, needs to be the one who gives forgiveness. It's not for me to forgive A.J., it's for Owen to forgive A.J., so when Jesus stands there and says to the paralytic, I forgive your sins, what is he saying? Ultimately, paralytic, your sins have been an offense against me. 
And yet the scribes know the truth. It's why the scribes get it right. They say nobody can forgive sins but God alone because ultimately every sin, sure other people are damaged by it. Other people get hurt by our sin. We get hurt by our sin and damaged by our sin, but ultimately it is God and God alone who is offended when we sin. And so the scribes say to Jesus, you, you can't forgive those sins. Only God can forgive those sins. Up until this point in the book of Mark, Jesus has been dis- demonstrating, and Mark has been telling the story in such a way as to demonstrate that Jesus has the power to heal. So we've had the healing of leper, we've had the healing of demon-possessed people, we've had healings of people that have various different diseases and problems. We've got all of these healings, and up until this point in the Gospel of Mark, Mark has been demonstrating that Jesus has the power and the ability to do all of these healings. Beginning in chapter 2, we have a shift. The question is not any longer, does Jesus have the power to do this, but does he have the authority? Is it right for Jesus to forgive sins? Who is this man? The question is no longer, can he do this? But who is he to do these things? And so they say in their hearts, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but sin alone? The camera shifts and we focus upon Jesus. And Jesus then says, why are you thinking like this? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or rise, take up your bed, and walk? Scholars debate actually which is easier. (laughs) Which is easier to say? But that misses the point. Because then Jesus turns to the paralytic and says, so that you know that I have the authority to forgive his sins. Then he exercises the power and heals the paralytic. He heals the paralytic as a demonstration of his authority to forgive sins. In other words, Jesus stands before the crowd and says, not only can I do this, but I am to do this, for I am God. This is as clear a declaration of Jesus' self-identification as the divine being that the text can put forward for us. Camera shifts one last time to the crowd and the paralytic Verse 12, he rose and immediately, we've seen that word immediately over and over again in the book of Mark, immediately he picks up his bed, goes out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this before. Those are the words that are available and set for each and every one of us. If you desire your faith to push through the obstacles, if you desire your faith to be visible to all people, do you desire a faith that you pursue even when it's costly? If you desire that faith that orients itself completely upon Jesus Christ, not because of what he can do, 
but because of who he is, then we can look only one place for that faith. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Great Father in heaven, we thank you so for the blessings that you give to us, for the faith that you pour out upon us, the strength, the ability, the wisdom, Lord, the opportunity we have to exhibit a faith to the entire world that is costly, yes, that is persistent, yes, but ultimately that is centered and flows from our relationship with you, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.